is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. back to the readers karamazov we are your hosts the bastard sons of hegel i'm carl bookmarks i'm friedrich picha and i'm soren rearguard as always you can follow us on social media at facebook.com slash the readers karamazov we are on twitter at the readers k you can also sign up to be a patron on our patreon that's patreon.com slash the readers karamazov that will give you access for as little as $5 a month to some wonderful bonus episodes, including one that we're recording later tonight on a film, or a series of films that are related somehow to our book for today. So give us a follow, give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening to us there. And also feel free to send in any questions you have to the readers, Karamazov at gmail.com. Tell us what you collect. We are talking tonight about the 1963 John Fowles thriller, the Collector, which is a really wonderful book, the very first book of John Fowles' career that was published. And we're going to be thinking about a lot of aspects of it, thinking about art, thinking about obsession, thinking about desire, and things like that. This is Friedrich's pick, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit about why he chose the book in just a minute. But as we always do, I'm going to start with a very brief summary of the plot of this book, just so if you haven't read it, you can kind of catch up. The Collector is sort of interestingly split into a couple of parts, almost like a sort of like a sandwich. It is the story of a lonely young man who ends up being called Ferdinand in the book, and he collects butterflies, and he's sort of this prototypical lonely young man. Today we probably call him something like an incel, and he wins a bunch of money in a, in a sort of gambling situation. And he decides to use that money to collect his ultimate object, which is this younger woman who he's um, known from his hometown, who's now in London, and he views her as this sort of ultimate object to be collected. And so he sets up this scheme, he, he gets a house, he sort of rigs it up to hold her, and then one day he collects her, he takes her, kidnaps her, and takes her away. And the book is about sort of how he keeps her there in that house. And then partway through, we switch to her perspective, and we're getting her journaling about her experience in captivity at his hands. And at the very end, we switch back to his perspective to see sort of how things wrap up by the end. It's a tale of sort of psychological depths and kind of towing that line between a genre piece as a thriller and a sort of more traditional piece of literary fiction that's interested in big ideas. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful read. So, Friedrich, tell us a little bit about why you chose this book. Sure. Um, I've been a Fowles fan for a while. I read The French Lieutenant's Woman, which is, in my mind, the premier neo-Victorian novel. I read, you know, his 18th century novel, A Maggot, and thought it was great. Maybe he's written both of those centuries as, as well as anybody. I read The Magus and thought it was incredible, and I kind of didn't read The Collector for a while because I thought the premise just sounded unappealing to me. 
and it's maybe one of the biggest problems I ever have uh, as a pro- like proselytizing for this book. If someone says, well, what's it about? And you say, it's, it's this guy kidnaps this woman and keeps her in his basement. It's just like, okay, I don't know if I want to read that. But it is a really beautiful book about the value of art and um, maybe humanity's fullest flourishing coming in artworks or in appreciation of art, as well as you know a book that asks questions about love and um, how you relate to other people across classes, because it is an English novel. It's very class conscious. And like all great English novels, it's a novel that kind of hates England, too. Um, <laughs> and I, I think... Um, it's a good statement if you're a first-time reader. If you're a first-time reader of Fowles, it's sort of a good artistic statement from him about what he's interested in his work. So, for instance, maybe as a starting point, one of the things that gets brought up in this novel about a young woman, Miranda, who's a painter or a would-be painter, a student at an art school, meeting a butterfly collector who kidnaps her um, and, and takes photographs of her is a question about media and different ways that painting, photography, or writing, poetry, novel writing, prose, whatever, can sort of capture a person or a relationship. Fowles has an essay from 1964 called I Write, Therefore I Am that's sort of all over the place, but it addresses some of these questions, and maybe we can start with that and then return to the novel with some of his thoughts in mind. So, for instance, one of the things that interests me from this piece is the distinction he draws between... Uh, what he calls the documentary style of writing, which is sort of, maybe in my mind, is sort of a program era MFA type thing uh, where you're using really stripped down prose to uh, present something in its plainest sense. Here's what happened. Here's what I did. And you, as the reader, sort of infer all the meaning from this beautifully austere little story. He compares the documentary style to cinema and talks about Cinema is something that's sort of dominating the thinking of people born after a certain time in the 20th century and dominating the thinking of writers and the style of writers born after a certain time. And he's out to to maybe write from the mind in some way or write from a place that's not just descriptive visually. And And he says at some point in here that visual description is like the most boring part of modern novels and he wants to get at something else. Yeah, yeah, it was a really compelling point. So I wanted to know what else interested you guys from this piece uh, and then maybe to bring it back to the novel itself and talk about what's going on with Miranda and, uh, and Frederick Clegg. You, you spoke about all good English novels hating England <laughs> in some way. I think you could just expand that to like any sort of national <laughs> sense of a, you know, a literary tradition. But in this, in this essay, you also get that Falls is a novelist who hates novelists. <laughs> he, he walks this strange line between braggadocio and humility, right? Where yeah. he's kind of out to be extremely ambitious as a writer, which he does that in a way that might feel a bit like a braggart. But what he's trying to say is, you know, there seems to be a lot of novels made because, you know, they can be made. And yeah. he, he says that what he's after is being a lasting great novelist of what he calls the mega European tradition, which mm-hmm. is like the West, basically. And he doesn't want to write about, you know, a specific aspect of England. He wants to write about a specific transcendental aspect of humanity or something. And mm-hmm. and you got to sort of appreciate the seriousness he has in some way, I think. Like you're saying with respect to the program era, it's maybe a little refreshing, maybe people find it off-putting, but you know, he's he's coming out like swinging for the fences in mm-hmm. this like 5-6 page essay. Um, I found that pretty 
pretty great. He also doesn't want to be a writer who makes comments on other people's writing. He doesn't want to be a novelist at a party. <laughs> He's, all of which are frogs or oxen, I think he calls them. <laughs> sort of like unable to appreciate their greatness or croaking too much about all of the greatness and everything. You can tell he's a curmudgeonly guy. And <laughs> One of the things that struck me about the essay, he draws this distinction between writers who start out with beautiful words and are in search of ideas and writers who start out with ideas and are in, in search of the correct words to put them into. And he says he's the second form. He, right? he has the ideas and he's searching for a form for them. And he has this sort of a sort of level of contempt for the other sort of writer. And what that made me think of it, thinking about it in terms of, of the program era, um, as we've been talking about it, which is the, for the listeners who don't know, aren't, aren't as familiar with this, this is the term that's used to describe um, fiction MFA programs in the United States since about 1950 or so. And, and the, a book by uh, Mark McGurl. Yes, yeah, so a wonderful book called The Program Era by Mark McGurl, which kind of goes into this and is talking about the particular sort of house style that develops in it, the MFA programs, which is this, as Friedrich pointed out, this sort of stripped down, austere style. It made me think about this kind of wonderful anecdote that I'm at getting at secondhand from a very famous novelist who taught at the Iowa Workshop, uh, which is probably the most famous of MFA programs. And she said in conversation with somebody that I know, I have all of these students who are coming in who write these beautiful, wonderful lyric sentences and they have nothing to say. And that's what that made me think about in, in this essay, right, is the idea Fowles is attacking those people who are technically very proficient writers but have nothing underneath them, um, nothing worth saying. Yeah, he's a writer with something to say, for sure. It's funny, too, there's an anecdote in, uh, in another part of this collection where, where I've read this essay, at least, called Wormholes that collects writing from across his life and career where he's talking about being at a party himself, sort of like a cocktail reception after an MFA reading or something, not to just keep harping on MFAs, where he talks about how <laughs> sitting back and listening to great storytellers and how people have this like expectation of him as a writer that he'll come up and tell a story. And he's like, that's as far away from who I am as a person as I could possibly be. Like he's the type of person who had a party is just going to sit there you know, it's like that meme with the guy sitting in the corner saying like they don't <laughs> they know, don't know I'm, I'm they don't yeah. know I'm a novelist. <laughs> That's him. Yeah. <laughs> um, he has oh. a lot to say though. There's a there's a part that sticks out to me in, in this essay um, that probably stuck out to both of you because it's just so it's sort of grotesque, and it relates to what's going on at the collector. I think where he's given us this idea about who he is as a writer connected to Defoe and Camus and uh, Jane Austen and some other people, and then it. It ends the section, paragraph break, and he's like, I was on jury duty at the Old Bailey in May 1961. And he has this really brief description of an, a really depraved crime about a man throwing the incestuously begotten baby of his eldest daughter into a furnace and then weeping before the, the jury at the Old Bailey. And he says, uh, I wanted to jump up and cry out. We did not judge him. He was the judge and he judged the whole of existence and then says that's why he's an atheist as well. And I feel like in The Collector, when I first read it, I was really, I didn't know that Miranda's narration was coming, which is a huge, the biggest part of the book. And it's what made the book feel really alive to me. But in on a second reading, it also stood out to me that he isn't indicting Clegg for his actions throughout the novel so much as like indicting the society that created Clegg 
um, this person who would find like, okay, I, I want a, a football pool gambling thing and earned a lot of money. And the greatest desire that I want to enact is kidnapping a woman and keeping her in my basement, you know, like a sort of sham marriage that for fouls, that's not like something he wants to reduce to an individual action. He thinks it's indicative of something wrong with English society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of his characters and all of his books are types in some way, right? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a novelist of ideas as, as Soren said, right? He's working between types and re- and real people or realism in I think really good ways. Uh, uh, one last thing I want to say about this short essay too, is that he does make a lot of points and and I feel like I disagree with almost all of them, but I, I like his reasoning for all of them. So like at one point in the short essay, he says, you know, he has to be as a novelist, an atheist, not belong to any political party and not belong to any artistic school or group or philosophy in any structured objective way in the way that, you know, Sartre had to be a communist and wrote as a communist. And while I, while I disagree with that, I like his reasoning, and his reasoning is that he has to be free, mm-hmm. and that freedom of like mental association, which for him requires those those three positions, is paramount in writing, and I, mm-hmm. and I like that that sense of you know why a writer writes uh, a lot. I think it helps understand the the book and some of the characters in the book too, Miranda specifically. Yeah, and GP maybe the. Yeah. painter who she has a weird sort of relationship with the older man one of the things that um i wanted to think about just briefly from this essay is he offers a sort of attack on this post-war literary movement in britain that is often called the angry young men you mm-hmm. can kind of call it whatever you want we've talked about this before in the iris murdoch episode if you want to go listen to that a severed head but just briefly he specifically mentions kingsley amos who's probably the most famous of the this practitioners of this post-war British novel. And it's a sort of class-conscious novel, but in a very dismissive way. They're generally, the writers are generally coming from uh, from working-class backgrounds of some sort. And there's a sort of energetic dismissal of big ideas and of big um, notions, right? Saying, this none of this matters. Like, we just want we want to face life, like the facts of life, very bluntly and kind of have a good time while we can. And the, those are sort of the protagonists of like Kingsley Amos novels or Alan Silito, who comes up in The Collector um, as, a, as a reference point. These are the sort of books that they're writing. They're very pragmatic books in a lot of ways and very kind of stripped down, but not particularly interested and, and indeed very dismissive of big ideas. And so Fowles, even though he's a contemporary of these novelists, and in some ways, Ferdinand Friedrich is a sort of type of an un- angry young man. He's very different than the picture that we get. And I, I liked that point that you made, Friedrich. He's not being held up as this like terrible person whose actions are so far beyond the pale. Right? It's about something bigger than just him himself. And that's what Fowles is getting at in the, in the novel. And I really like that. I think that's that's bracing. I mean, I like some of the angry young men too, but I, but I do find that style of being willing to go big to find a subject worthy of writing about really bracing. I like the image he uses in this essay a lot of trying to find authors who he he compares it to Atlas holding up the world, right? Mm-hmm. And some authors take up this subject that's too big for them. It's just too weighty, and they kind of get crushed below it. And then other authors are 
way too strong for their topics, right? They're just writing about garbage. And But then he says you got to look for the authors, and he, he mentions specifically Flaubert yeah. and, and Jane Austen as authors who whose strength is perfectly suited to the weight that they're carrying around. And that's kind of, I think, what he's aiming at in his fiction is to have a subject matter that he is up to and that is also worthy of his efforts as a novelist. Those are such perfect examples too, Austin and Flaubert. He talks about Sartre and Camus too, so people yeah. who have schools, I think. So It's like he's writing a novel that Sartre or Camus would write in the style of like Jane Austen half the time or something oh, like that. You know, yeah, he's like that's a great characteristic characterization existential ideas into the 19th century well not the early 19th century english novel and defoe certainly is in this book a lot in terms of the style of it soren i like what you said that this is kind of like an anti-type of of the angry young man that that ferdinand is, is himself like a critique of the angry young man right and some kind of classism in those novels perhaps can we run down a quick list here of uh, aliases that Ferdinand is what he, uh, what the kidnapper refers, he refers to himself as Ferdinand as a sort of like weak attempt to disguise who he is because uh, his real name is Frederick Clegg. And then Miranda begins to call him Caliban, a reference to the Tempest. And Miranda's also in the Tempest. So is Ferdinand. And so is Ferdinand. <laughs> right. And I feel, I think there are a couple of other illusions that get, brought up uh emma woodhouse gets brought up a few times and then there's just a sort of fluency with uh painters and musicians that miranda's discussing with uh gp uh in her imagined sort of conversations and recalled conversations i I think that's one of the reasons too i like fowls is that he obviously is someone who like cares deeply about his literary inheritance and is like probing where he is in it in this essay he talks about like when everything in the new newosphere is flattened or whatever it's it doesn't matter if his influences are contemporary his influences can come from anywhere in time and that's evident in this in this work yeah that's a great point that contemporaries overestimate the influence on themselves or their peers by contemporaries i thought that was a great point (laughs) that's one of the things i admire about about his literary project here is his willingness, and you see that certainly in his other books as well, French Lieutenant's Women, right? The willingness to pull style, not just ideas, but style itself from various places and sort of thread them together and not be, not really be worried about whether he's, he's au courant or not, but being concerned with kind of making the form fit what he wants to talk about. Maybe that's a way into this novel, too, is to think about influence on the characters, because Miranda's really preoccupied with how to become a a successful artist, not successful financially, but successful for her own fulfillment, what she sees as aesthetic value in art. And um, GP, the mentor, lover, figure who's sort of hovering in her mind at all times, talks about like getting other artists' styles out of her style, which is like sort of to the point that Carl was making earlier about about striking out as an artist on your own instead of being with a school on a more like psychological level. I, um, I think it's important to know that Miranda talks about Ferdinand. I guess we can stick with Ferdinand for his name as someone who's always repeating cliches and speaking in this sort of curt and annoyingly cliched style where he's not really communicating anything. And in fact, 
all it's doing is sort of shutting down any point of inquiry or, or vulnerability. Anytime that there's a possibility of giving an opinion, he sort of just dismisses it with a sort of truism. And there's a, a moment that speaks to this, I think, late in the novel when Miranda's alone, as she is for much of her time, uh, in this cell that Fernet has made for her beneath the house that he bought with his winnings. When she's just like looking in the mirror and realizing like, who, who am I really? What is myself? And what she says when she's doing that is that she realizes so much of herself during her daily life outside of this prison is given over to ordinary people. And I think that's what's going on with Frederick or Ferdinand for much of his life is that it's almost completely given over to other people and that he's, he speaks with the voices of others and speaks with the cliches of others. And there's almost nothing original about him, maybe except for this violent act that he's done. And she's, and like Fowles too, is invested in finding a uniqueness in some way. That makes me wonder if um, the ideas in uh, Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem are sort of in Fowles' mind at this same time as well. And if I were to title my reading of this book, it would be The Calibanality of Evil. Um, (laughs) Because Miranda calls him Caliban, right? Her point from her perspective that we get through the middle section of the novel, right, is... I'm physically imprisoned, but you are sort of noetically imprisoned. You are in the prison of your own mind, which is a banal space where you have no creativity, no imagination. And this is Fowles' critique of the worst of any class. You know, Um, any class can be prey to this kind of simple collection of goods that, you know, is brought on by like, uh, a capitalist system or just an unthinking uncreative system where you're sort of leeching off of the creativity of others to find meaning in your life and you have no sort of ability to create your own meaning or your own sense of what's good or bad in art or in ethical deeds and that's kind of where Miranda gets the most upset with him right he can't even have something like taste or judgment with respect to any work of art. And for her, that's, you know, and I think for Falls too, that's directly linked with his inability to see the wrong in what he's doing. He seems so ruled by etiquette more than anything else, right? It's not that he, so just to explain to, to listeners, he never, he's a very um, polite captor, right? He never, there's no hint of, um, rape, certainly, or anything like that, or, or physical abuse, except for the moments when she tries to escape, and he's kind of rough with her, but he's a very decorous host, except for the fact that he's imprisoning her, right? And 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 she sort of identifies that as his inability to even sort of rise to the level of having any sort of passion. He's just, he's done this one thing in his life, and he doesn't know what to do with it now, and so he continues to be ruled by these markers of what he thinks are good breeding or taste, but to her just seem like nonsense. What it, what sense does it make to be polite and considerate of somebody when you have kidnapped them and put them in your basement? He's sort of trapped in that world of not not right and wrong, but polite and impolite or something like that. Yeah, I wonder um, what y'all make though of like the there's some irony to be had, right, with Miranda's, like, trying to get him to go out and collect artworks for her, some of them by GP, right? And also, 
I get a little bit of a sense in this in the end of this second part that's Miranda's diary, um, which is very kind of like Anne Frank almost esque. It feels like in parts um, falls is you know riffing on that. He's almost trying to make a claim that Miranda too is beholden to a kind of collecting, and it's yeah. Miranda's own self criticism is you know taken from GP is that she is only collecting different artistic styles and again with the falls essay really led me to show is that you know individuality has to be the the dominating force in a work of art and that's you know what gp thinks and through gp that's what miranda thinks right Mm -hmm. so the fact that her work is too much like anyone else still makes her kind of a collector i wonder if Mm -hmm. you thought the book sort of made that point or not she doesn't seem to have achieved by the end that sense of originality is that what you're getting at carl and this is maybe to be fair to her right she's still very young and maybe she'll develop that if she's given more time but she is at that point in life where she can only absorb influence and then sort of reproduce it and she hasn't if you like found her own voice as a painter yet or something like that she hasn't been able to break free from that is that what you're getting at I think I'm getting at like the the really basic question is like who is the collector in the book? I mean, it could be Miranda. I think it could be Ferdinand. I think it could be GP in a way. And I think that's kind of one of the beauties of the title. But yeah, then in the other sense, I'm getting at like, is this book sort of pretty pessimistic in the sense that only great artists who like then become fountainheads of an artistic style or school escape being a collector is is that the only way of escaping is like this kind of uh throwback to like a homeric you know only the achilles of the world are worth our stories and worth being the subject of history great man or nothing kind of worldview or is it something else to that point one of the lessons i guess that gp imparts to miranda in her recollections in her diary is that like it doesn't matter this goes back to what we were talking about with the essay it doesn't matter how good you are stylistically in your craft you need to have a personality that can like break through it in an interesting way and some people just don't have that personality and tough shit you you aren't an artist exactly right exactly like she uses the capitalized f few she talks about the few right and these are like the elect artists or art appreciators maybe in some instances <laughs> who like get it, who can either make something beautiful or f- like really fully appreciate something beautiful. And everyone else is not really appreciating on the level that she is. And I think, yeah, the Fountainhead, there's something <laughs> Randian about that worldview. And in most instances, I'd, I'd want to argue against like that romantic sensibility, capital R romantic yeah. sensibility of the individual artist. And yet for some reason with Fowles, it makes sense to me because he's just this like weird guy in the woods writing these <laughs> books that uh, speak to me in a way that I find satisfying. She does talk about the few in contrast to what she calls also with capitalized uh, first letters, the new people uh, who have been brought up by the labor party. Yeah. And uh, maybe Soren can speak to this uh, a little bit more about you know, the sort of post-World War II uh, rise of the middle class, of a new middle class, uh, thanks to the welfare state in Britain. Uh, for her, whatever that means for people in like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs world is whatever. It, it also brings this sort of snide, disrespectful in the art world group of people who, who just like hate everything aesthetic about class, but not the actual 
problems of material problems of class, if that makes sense. Like to her, the new people hate everything that looks down on them as, as people who were once working class and now rose up. And that means people at fine dining restaurants, people at art galleries, people in the world of like uh, art house cinema. It's not really a material critique of anything. It's, it's just an aesthetic distaste that for her is like destructive of all that's valuable in art. Yeah, and that's I, to me that's one of the interesting threads running through the book is the sense that this defense of greatness in art is jostling against the contemporary in some interesting ways. Because to to me, what sticks out in the book in terms of GP's appreciation of art are two two people. One is Rembrandt. In the painting end of things, there's he goes to a gallery with Miranda and her aunt, and her aunt's like Rembrandt, that guy sucks, and GP's just like, but his head's about to explode because he's <laughs> like crying at the beauty of the Rembrandt, and then and then the other in the world of music is is Bach, and they're mm-hmm. kind of contemporaries of each other, somewhat contemporaries of each other, and contemporaries sort of in their sensibilities and contemporaneous in the present day maybe for their uncoolness, right? They're just about as uncool as you can get in 1960s, right, London. And, you know, GP, and I think by extension Fowles, is really defending them as people who have a true, some sort of true sensibility of art. And that's rubbed up against the sort of very quickly evolving um, world of modern art that GP is very critical of, the Jackson Pollocks and the people like this, right, who are creating these very cutting-edge works in the 1960s. And he seems to oppose that to true artist artistry. And and where I'm going with this is that there seems to be a connection then between the Jackson Pollocks of the world and the, these new people, the sort of upper-middle class who have risen up, but who have risen up from a lower-class background, maybe many of them. People like Miranda's parents, who her dad's a doctor, right? sort of a professional level person and and that contrast there with true artists who are somehow timeless not caught up in the contemporary moment but there's almost a double contrast because it doesn't seem like Ferdinand fits into either of those categories he's not one of he's certainly not one of the few but he's not really one of the new people either he doesn't fit there either because he is still sort of lower class. Even though he's gotten money now from the pools, he's so he's been brought up in that lower class background, and so he has that sort of an even lower level of sensitivity to those things. That's why he's he's Caliban, right? Mm-hmm. He's not even Ferdinand from the Tempest. He's Caliban, the 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 savage, right? Like idiot. Yeah, there's a on 224. This is after the sort of. I don't know what you'd call it, rhapsodic praise of the few against the new people in the previous pages, that then she starts a new diary entry and says, I'm vain, I'm not one of these new people, even if she wants to be. And then, of course, as Soren was just saying, Caliban is not typical of the new people, even though we feel like the last few pages have been setting him up as one of, as typical of this new rising middle class. He's hopelessly out of date, she says. He calls the record player the gramophone, and there's his lack of confidence. They're not ashamed of themselves and saying that he is, right? He's... Something something that's wrong with him and that's driving him to this act is like a carapace around him that's preventing him from any sort of... Like, it, 
it's almost as if she's saying at least the new people like voice their opinions as horrible as they might be. He's just like a machine of no opinions and nothing. And just this one horrible action that started out as a sort of velleity that he then pursued by just pretending it was going to be ha- not happening and, and pretending and then eventually it just happens and now he's in it. But yeah, there's definitely, as Soren was saying, there's a critique of like passionlessness. He's totally unsexed and, and has no interest in having sex with her. He just like wants the facade of a relationship as if that were the meaningful thing. That's an interesting, I was going to bring that up too, Friedrich, I'm glad you did, is that there's sort of a pairing of artistic creation with this erotic desire. Mm-hmm. And actually, they map pretty well onto that with GP, who's the sort of older experienced man who wants to go to bed with Miranda. She doesn't want to because he's ugly, right? But maybe she eventually convinces herself that she would or she would marry him or something like that. He's sort of like that true erotic form. And then on the other side is is Ferdinand Caliban, who's completely unsexy. He doesn't even, he can't really grasp like what sex is, right? In some some important sense. And then in the middle, you have this guy, Piers, who she's Mm -hmm. remembering from her time in London. who's a sort of bourgeois idiot and just wants to fool around with her, um, but is not interested in sort of the greater erotic arts. But nor is he uh, on Caliban's level of being unsexed. There's this sort of gradations here of what's what's valuable and what's not valuable. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how this maps as well onto like just like an Eichmann figure. You know, in the beginning, he says like, I was just following orders, the classic yeah. Nazi yeah. defense, right? Um, and then Miranda says, you know, he has this money and he has nothing. He has no idea what to do with it other than, you know, collect, collect me and spend it all on himself. So selfish, so evil. Yeah. So he's like this banal, evil, just following orders type. So it's it's another, it's another way that makes him a kind of an interestingly round character in spite of his like seeming like monomania or whatever his desire or lack of desire is it's it's for one sole purpose which is like containing and collecting miranda right but i I don't think like like you both were saying he doesn't fit into the new people or these other or he's not simply a lower class he's also this kind of figure of a bureaucrat um, and he's also this figure of a person who like a bureaucrat could you know have the correct tastes but they mean they mean nothing to him if he gets them right or if he gets them wrong I mean, his uh, hobby, which is butterfly collecting, is a sort of a Nabokovian <laughs> pursuit, right? And you think I was wondering if that it, was intentional too. <laughs> I was wondering that too. <laughs> I was wondering if, when you think about a butterfly, a lepidopterist, um, you imagine someone who has some sort of artistic sensibility. It seems like the hobby that a middle-aged professor would take up. Why not um, <laughs> a professor of literature? I mean, uh, but he's someone who uh, he knows butterflies. He knows at one point mentions like the work of other lepidopterologists and what they've done and has this amazing collection of butterflies pinned in their boxes in his house that he doesn't show to anyone. But Miranda's like, that's not an art, that's a science and it's a classification. And for her, the idea of classifying even art into like cubism or impressionism is a stultifying uh, thing to do. It's almost as if like you need complete freedom. I mean, the butterfly collecting is tied also to his other hobby, which is photography. I liked your point about about butterfly collecting, which is like it's something that somebody who has some sort of artistic sensibility might take up 
if they have sensibility and no actual talent or worldview. I'm not saying that about photography, but there's that implication that there, that there's something similar there, right? Mm-hmm. That there's the photography is this sort of ready-made form of artistic expression, right? Or it's like adult coloring books or something, right? <laughs> oh. It's like people who want to feel. And again, I'm not knocking yeah. photography. I don't. Th- I don't think it's actually that. But I, but but there's a, a sort of implication in the book that it, it might be that. I was going right. to say it's like he's again. I would not knock the, all photographers either, but it seems like this perspective in the book is one of like these are arts of death, mm-hmm. an art that requires like a dead subject or a a deadened subject and therefore a deadened like artist in some way. And it's this weird sort of anti-art or enervated art that follows this like he's making a strike against it, even though I don't think he's making a strike against, you know, lepidopterists and photographers, but he is making a, a strike against what I think in this novel, those things symbolize like dead art or if not art for art's sake, then like in an art that has some sort of purely mechanical aspect to it to that point and this will come up next time uh next episode when we talk about realism and uh, beyond realism but i feel like one of the critiques that he's leveling in those moments uh talking about photography is against a sort of the, the sort of dry realism that we were talking about earlier in this episode and in the iris murdoch episode and elsewhere which is just like this documentary photo of the world I took a photo of something I saw, and here it is. And for her, that's dead. But then she, Miranda kind of backtracks on that a little bit and says, well, there, there are photographers who have an eye in the way an artist might have an eye. And um, how writing comes into this for her is that she, she feels says it feels unnatural when she's writing, that it feels like she's just forcing uh, two people into a conversation in the, the way you might in like a play. But when you draw a line... Uh, she's an art student and when you draw a line you know it's true or not true just that line and she has that like she values photographers who can have a vision that they see something and they capture it in a specific way I don't know there's something about like the way of seeing and the strike of the line and the the sentence that like gets at truth in a way that even these like beautiful program era sentences with nothing behind them don't it's a very um, like capital R romantic moment, and if you yeah, it's are, so romantic. Yeah. If you're in like an artist who's ever felt that, you know exactly kind of what she's talking about. Whether you're a painter or photographer or whatever you are, right? I think Thomas Mann has some quote where it's like the writer is the person for whom writing is harder than everybody else, and it's this sense that like you put so much weight into it that when it finally truly strikes you, or you have like a moment of pure inspiration or pure representation through your art, that's kind of what you're living for, right? You're a capital A artist, you know? That's like who Miranda is, right? And it's kind of like death to all. Uh, I I knew a guy once who gave me a book of poems, and in the front he just wrote, death to all false poems. (laughs) Like, he's a a pure poet, right? One thing that Carl keeps bringing up is uh, Eichmann and Arendt and... This was published in the early 60s, and certainly there's a sort of Nazi undercurrent to it or questions about Nazi ideology, if they can be said to have one. And, uh, you know, Frederick Clegg read the techniques of the Gestapo or whatever the book was called, and that's part of how he Mm -hmm. made this scheme. At one point then in the novel, Miranda 
asks him if he appreciates art or cares about art or books and he's like not really he read a detect couple of detective novels or something and she's like oh see if you had loved art you couldn't imprison somebody and i knew you didn't love art because you've imprisoned me since we're talking about the banality of evil and eichmann i wanted to maybe think too about how like famously nazis were uh, many nazis were failed artists and so the idea that and best educated humanists maybe in history that in the 19th century in england were horrible colonizers the idea that the idea that like art will bring greater humanity into being doesn't necessarily seem to follow yeah that's that's what i found to be so interesting in this book and just on the level of making a really good novel right there i was expecting it to be like all right miranda's like the author you know in some serious yeah. way and there we get a lot of narrative irony right where like clearly that view is being really satirized given the fact that this guy is like basically a nazi and and yeah he also says you know like what's one death to a species that's why he collects butterflies you know it's a very like lebensraum-esque you know view of like what's the what's the problem with genocide you know it's just a few deaths who cares and and it's also like files being like very atheist right there i think he's kind of saying you know this is what humanity hath wrought and it's you know it's evil no one's going to come in and stop evil when it's just, you know, men against men or people against people. So that's such a fascinating point. And I just really don't know what, what Fowles is, is making of that because he seems very much like Miranda is, is his hero. You know, he, mm-hmm. he really backs her in, in a lot of ways, but then he's sort of doing a 180 in this moment and saying like, art doesn't save us, even though it's like, the greatest possible thing to do is become an artist mm-hmm. it still doesn't make us good <laughs> it's not fully valorized it's like he still has that that trial in the old bailey in the back of his mind the whole time it's like mm-hmm. even in a world of civility or uh, middle class morality as eliza doolittle's father says in the yeah. world that ferdinand inhabits or in a world of great art and humanist education there's still these horrible things and that's maybe what makes Miranda so interesting and alive as a character is that she has beliefs that we might not fully back. And she has ideas that are confused because she's a young woman, just like, you know, all people across all ages are, are confused really. And like, there's a artistic point of view, but it's not something that we can boil down and say, Oh, Fowles believes that art will save us. It's sort of like Carl said, mm-hmm. Fowles believes that art is one of the greatest things a human being can do, but does it save us? And to go back just for a minute to the essay, I was really struck by the beginning of the of his essay talking about being a writer. And he said, I didn't start from a place of wanting to be a writer. I started from yeah. the knowledge that I wanted to cha- change the world, basically. I can't remember exactly what he says. Mm-hmm. But And then he came to the point, the realization that like he couldn't do these other things, but he was equipped to be a writer. But he doesn't really feel like that's adequate. But it's like the best he can manage is to do this. I think that's a really delicate and interesting position, right? You kind of run across, sort of pushing back against this. This is becoming a very common place notion now is that somehow, like, if you just get people to read the right books Mm -hmm. in the right way, you'll have, like, empathy, and that will change the world. Yeah, right. yeah, great. A great point that this book makes, I think, subtly and therefore all the more effectively is that the culture war is not the class war there's a difference there and 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 follows the way he plays chess with these two characters is 
you know, Miranda wants to be a great artist and thinks that will save us. But then the counter move is, you know, Friedrich says, more people would do what I am doing if they just had the option, you know, if they just yep. had the time and the means or if it was respectable, which, you know, he's making a really, I think, Fowles is backing that claim a little bit as the as like the writer saying there's a very thin more moray over the fact that this doesn't happen more. And, and in fact, in like the 80s, like something like this did happen, only much more, uh, like much worse. It's this Austrian guy. Fritzel is his name, Joseph Fritzel he was born as, and then sometimes his his name in the news stories is uh something else, but he kidnapped, sexually assaulted, raped numerous times his own daughter when she was eighteen, and in a very similar way that happens in this book where she was imprisoned underground in this like doubly locked thing, and he would visit her whenever he wanted and the whole family. Uh, and the whole you know world thought she was just a missing person and then one day she got really sick as what happens in this novel and he was like okay i guess i have to let you out takes her to the hospital which friedrich doesn't do in this in this book and then they were kind of like who are you like what's your name and like you have extreme vitamin d deficiency from never being outside for years and years and like you know you have seven kids with your own father it's it's revealed and then like he goes to jail for the rest of his life i forget if he got the death penalty or whatever but i think Fowles's you know prediction was kind of sadly right on that and that this is an all too plausible scenario you know given the human condition or something can we talk for a minute about we've kind of danced around the tempest as a reference point for this book which it certainly is in the naming and even a bit i would say in the situation Right, the sort of oh, capturing yeah. away to an, an trapped island, trapped on an island, <laughs> trapped on an island, um, and that and that sort of thing. But what struck me also is that there's a really deep thematic resonance here with the Tempest, because the Tempest is a play that is largely about the ability or the inability to forgive those who have hurt you, mm-hmm. and that's a theme that's running through Miranda's section of the book quite a bit. Is her sort of vacillating between these different states of relation to Ferdinand. Quite understandably, at times, it's just hatred, right? Um, And then other times, it's like she wants to sort of think about approaching forgiveness, but she can't quite get there. And at other points, it's like we could maybe identify it maybe as a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, but I think it's something else other than that, too, in that she says, like, she sort of comes to make peace with his existence there because he's the only other person there with her and she like has to coexist with him in some way with Ferdinand and so I'm just wondering like to what extent is forgiveness a possibility in this book and in and and, and what might Fowles be saying about forgiveness in society as a whole at large I think the one thing that's important to say given this like line of thought is that this book I think escapes realism at this point. Like oh, we're not, we're not mm-hmm. meant to read these interactions between uh, Miranda and Friedrich as like how a real person would act in this situation right. or how a real person Absolutely. would feel. And so all of those questions that are like, you know, criminal investigation questions are not ones he's interested in as in as a writer. Totally so agreed, like, yeah. so let's just, let's just sidebar those and say, we're not talking about <laughs> real situations. But given just like the fiction, the fictional situation that he draws up, 
you can feel him as a writer really pressing the character of Miranda to try and find a way to understand and like through that method of understanding she's trying to give Friedrich an out so that she can understand or forgive him in some way and she tries that with like buying things for her and then getting him to like try to appreciate them in some way mm-hmm. yeah and she tries it with these various like attempts at friendly intimacy where she tries to befriend him and like think of them as in a potential friend relationship mm-hmm. and give him mm-hmm. some chances to like grow as a potential friend but I think that the book ultimately sides for me that like one of the ways I could sort of really briefly crib the book is like even if you put the two classes in a room together for eternity they are not going to agree and they are not going to reconcile there will always be class division that's kind of Mm. i think one of the takeaways of the book so like for me that the answer the short answer is no there's there's no forgiveness possible Mm. just based on what what's on the page anyway when miranda's closer to death in her narration she rereads the tempest and she says it's totally different this time and what strikes her now is the pity shakespeare feels for caliban um Mm -hmm. this is the same which which she feels beneath the hate and disgust for her caliban because they're half creatures quoting shakespeare not honored with a human shape and you know if soren's asking about forgiveness in this novel i think that she approaches it. I mean, he says in his narration in section three that when she's dying, approaching death, that she says, I forgive you. And, you know, we can take whether whether she says that or not with a grain of salt. But there is the question of like something, there's something in the society that created this person that is the problem. And we can and have to uh, blame him for his actions because what he's done is horrible. But also there there's something, she's searching for something potentially redeeming in him in a way that is very uh in in an ideal world very christian and you know i want to emphasize that in this novel it's it's for those of you who haven't read it there's never a a really a point where we reach the csi plot arc world where something about frederick is explained and, oh well he this happened to him in his childhood there there is some some family history but there's nothing where it's like well he was abused or this happened to him and that's why there's not something specific in society that like broke him and made him into a bad person the way that happens in so many you know, tv procedurals but miranda is willing to admit that there's something in in our world that has produced what she calls a half person and a half creature missing the ability to love really or be loved or whatever. This is a book about love too. We can talk about that. But if we're asking about love, which I think the nature of love has been a theme in our podcast. It's come up in a few different, uh, a few different texts that we've visited and movies. But one of the texts in conversation with the collector is Emma, Jane Austen's Emma. Mm-hmm. And she sees herself as Emma Woodhouse, someone who's precocious and um, has designs on her society and her, interlocutors but who ultimately is maybe a little too clever and needs someone like Knightley or GP to step in and say well this is I I have no uh, truck with people who are art artful I want people who are real and when she's thinking about herself as Emma she says 
Love is something that comes in different clothes with a different way and different face, and perhaps it takes a long time for you to accept it to be able to call it love. She's not talking about Frederick. She's talking about uh, GP. But I think that that's something in this novel that we're that we're tasked with asking is like what how does love move between these characters including frederick and how can you try and love something that seems not to be capable of loving you back because it's not setting you free yeah i mean we get frederick's like philosophy of life a little bit on 299 i wanted what money couldn't buy you can't buy happiness because what it is it's luck it's like the pool's Worse, there aren't even good teams and bad teams and likely draws. You can never tell how it will turn out. Just A versus B, C versus D, and nobody knows what A and B and C and D are. There's no mercy in things. There's not even a great beyond. There's nothing. So he decides to have his collection. I think Fowles' point is like, that's a conscious decision on mm-hmm. his, his part, and that disallows you love relationships, right? Uh, there's a kind of collecting sense of what your relationships are, mm-hmm. and there's a love sense of what relationships are, and you can't have both of those. And that's where the you know more of the the modern recuperative reading of Caliban comes from, right? Because like he's enslaved, therefore he can't have the freedom necessary to love. So there's no possibility of that, and. It's interesting that Falls twists that, you know, and makes the Caliban figure the evil figure. But that's one way to think about what you said. It's a hard question, though. Ultimately, the novel always comes back to something Miranda says when she is first imprisoned, which is like, power was never more real for her. It's about power now. And in a world where power rules, you can't have real love because love needs mutual vulnerability. And they don't have that, and they never can have that because he's keeping her locked beneath his house in this prison cell. Can we talk about the list a little bit that GP has? I just want to get y'all's quick response to it. Because in the essay, we get like Fowles' list, you know, don't be part of a school, got to be an atheist, don't be for a party expressly in your book, right? And then on 152, list of the ways in which he has altered me. This is Miranda speaking about GP, either directly or confirmed alterations in progress. One, if you are a real artist, you give your whole being to your art. Anything short of that, then you are not an artist. Not what GP calls a maker. Maybe I agree with that. Two, you don't gush. You don't have little set pieces or set ideas you gush out to impress people with. Kind of agree with that too. Number three, you have to be left politically because the socialists are the only people who care for all their mistakes. They feel they want to better the world. No comment. Four, you must make always, you must act if you believe something. Talking about acting is like boasting about pictures you're going to paint the most terrible bad form. Totally agree with that. Number five, if you feel something deeply, you're not ashamed to show your feeling. I'll remain neutral on that one. Number six, you accept that you are English. You don't pretend that you'd rather be French or Italian or something else. Which I feel like Fowles is like so guilty (laughs) of. And would acknowledge that he's guilty of. Wants to be French. Yeah. Seven. But you don't compromise with your background. You cut off all the the old you that gets in the way of the maker you. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. 
It's like a program for authenticity, right? I guess that's another thing we could talk about, right? It's like that's true. Ph- philosophical authenticity is so important to Miranda, and it, so it makes her like existentially minded, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what Frederick is is like a total desert of authenticity and a mm-hmm. complete opposite of existential purpose. That's going to do it for us for this episode. We'll be back next time. We're going to be talking about another great mid-century book, this time American, uh, one of Carl's picks, and our second science fiction book. If you haven't listened to our first episode on science fiction on Samuel Delaney's Trouble on Triton, you'll want to go listen to that. This is a book that's very related to that book. Um, It is Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, and we will be uh, talking about that next time. Do go sign up for our Patreon. We're about to record a movie episode related to the collector somewhat it's a dual episode about two adaptations of the Hannibal Lecter character of course Jonathan Demme's very famous 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs and then the slightly lesser known but still very worthwhile 1986 Michael Mann film Manhunter and we will be talking about those two in conjunction with each other Um, that's going to be available only to patrons on our Patreon so patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. We hope you join us there. But until next time, why don't you play us out, Cat Keyboard? Russians.